0: The kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom where the last is first and the first is last. The humble are exalted and the broken are restored. If ever we need a revival in the world, the time is now. The lasting change we need does not come from the powerful or the influential. True change, real healing, and times of deep renewal are birthed when the people of God humble themselves, pray, and seek His face. It all begins with the church, which means it must begin inside of you and inside of me. This is the moment for the church of Jesus, not to settle for survival, but to call down revival. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I want to thank everybody on all three campuses for being in person today. I love to see human beings in the room. And at the Sugarland Campus, we're so grateful for all of you being here. At the Missouri City, at the Richmond-Rosenberg Campus, yay, God, for each and every one of you. At the end of the first Constitutional Convention ever in the history of the United States, in 1787, just a couple of years, I believe, after the Revolutionary War, our amazing, our incredible Constitution was actually formed. And it was an amazing document that God, I believe God, intended for us. Benjamin Franklin made a statement at the end of that that convention. And he said this, we have now given to you our republic. Let's see if you can keep it. And in every generation that has come since, there have been challenges and problems and difficulties and the struggle of keeping that republic. And the same is true about our generation. And by our generation, I mean every one of us who are alive in America today. We know the problems we have, the political issues that we have, the social issues that we have, the moral issues, the economic issues. But I want you to know that the greatest problem in America is spiritual. And that if the spiritual difficulties were changed, everything else would begin to line up. The problem in America is spiritual. Now, I'm quite aware of the fact that an election is coming up in a couple of weeks. The greatest privilege that we have living in a democracy is the privilege to vote. We live in a democracy We live in a place in which we get the opportunity to actually cast a free ballot, a free vote, and to express our views. Every one of us who have registered to vote, you've got to vote. You cannot not vote. It is part of our civil responsibility. It is part of, I think, our moral responsibility and even a spiritual responsibility. It's your patriotic duty. Please vote. Did you realize that there is only a sliver of time in human history in which people had the privilege of voting and we live in that sliver of time? There are so many people that would change places with us immediately if they could. Even in this day, around the world, they'd give their right arm if they could live in America, if they could cast a vote. They could help determine who it is that will lead them. They would do it in a heartbeat. We must vote. Every person should vote. Last Friday was my day off. I get Fridays off, and last Friday I actually did get a day off. And the noise not always happen, but I did. And Kathy and I decided this is the great time to go and vote. You get to, but we get to vote early, and so we went and voted. Of course, we would pick the coldest, rainiest day in the last months. That's the day we would pick to go vote. And before we left the house, Kathy said to me, you know, you you ought to take a jacket. And I said, oh, I don't need a jacket. See, in my mind, I was thinking, I'm a man and we don't need jackets. But what I didn't realize is we would be standing outside in the rain, in the cold for one hour. Outside Now, we had umbrellas, but umbrellas do not cut the wind. And we were freezing. Well, I was freezing. She was not. I am a man, but I'm going to tell you, I needed a coat. We stood out there for one hour. It took one hour and 20 minutes to finally vote, and it was worth every second. If it would have taken two hours, it would have been worth it. If it would have taken three hours, it would have been worth it. Because I got the opportunity to speak my mind by casting a vote. And nobody could take it from me. You get an opportunity to do something that other people cannot do. You must vote. Whether you are Democrat or you Republican or you're independent, you must go and vote. Now, having said all of that, but the truth is, It doesn't matter who the person is that is the president of the United States in November. That person or any senator or any representative cannot bring revival to America. It takes the people of God to bring revival to America, and that is what I want to talk to you about today. In the Old Testament, during the time of King Solomon, the Bible tells us that Israel was at the its apex. It was, it was huge and it was powerful and it was wealthy. And in fact, the words that are used in scripture is that silver was as plenteous as rocks in Israel during Solomon's reign. Because there were so many silver mines and gold mines that had been found and had been mined out and there was all that wealth that was available. People were wealthy, they were bold, they were strong. It was an amazing time in Israel's history. And one of the greatest buildings of all time had been built the first temple to God. There is Solomon and he brings all of Israel to Jerusalem and they all get on their knees and they dedicate that temple to Almighty God. And at that moment, the most incredible thing that could have ever been imagined to happen, the Shekinah glory of God fell upon that building. Everybody saw it. Everyone could see the glory of God. And he went into that temple, into the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit of God empowered that place. And God spoke to the heart of King Solomon and he said, as long as you and my people will honor me and follow me, I will bless you. But the moment you begin to turn your back on me, I will bring judgment. And then God uttered these words that we have read how many times in 2nd Chronicles chapter 7 verse 12 to 14 and listen to what he says and the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a, a disease among my people now it's not intended that that these be all that the the, uh, judgment of God demonstrates. The judgment of God can come in a variety of ways. These are simply three examples. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal your land. This is a passage of Scripture that we've heard how many times? How many sermons have we heard from this passage? How many Bible studies have we been in in which this passage of Scripture was quoted or read? How many times as we have been reading the Bible have we come across this passage of Scripture? It is a passage of hope, but it is also a passage of judgment. Judgment is what is issued first. And that is what I now want to talk to you about. And there is a question that we've got to ask that has to be answered. And the question is simply this Has the judgment upon America already begun? How many times have I heard people say, well, one day the judgment of God is going to come upon America? But the question actually is 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 the judgment of God upon America already here? Has it already begun to fall? Notice what he says When I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a disease among my people. Has it already? Be gone. Missionary Avery Willis passed away 10 years ago. He's been in heaven for a decade. I loved him, and he didn't even know it. I never met him. I honored him. I, I thought so highly of Avery Willis because Avery Willis was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He lived his talk. He, he walked the walk. And I so admired Avery Willis. Avery Willis had been a missionary to Indonesia for many years, and he came back from that assignment, and he, he was given a desk job here and, and for Southern Baptist. And, but when he came back to the United States, he saw how immoral we had become. It just it, it stunned him. How spiritually ignorant America had become, it was shocking to him. And he began to, to do his own research about what, what's happened to America. And he, he, had, he knew some connections in the government and he got all kinds of government files upon the, that talked about the different moral issues and what had been discovered and what has been kept up with about morals in America. And in the process of his research, God began to show him seven stages of the judgment of God that God brought upon Israel in the Old Testament. Not just once, but several times because there were times in which Israel had fallen away from God and the judgments would begin to come and Israel would turn its heart back to God. But then finally Israel turned its back on God and refused to repent and he took he God began to show him took Avery through the seven stages of the judgment of God upon Israel. So what are those seven stages? Well, they are as these. First, there is the conviction of sin. Second, there are the warnings by God's word and his prophets. Third, there is the remedial judgment allowing a nation to experience some of the consequences of sin. Fourth, there is the removal of the presence of God. We we sing God bless America, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It has happened. God has blessed this nation, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. It is the removal of the presence of God. Then number five is this, the taking away of the hedge of protection and allowing the enemies to begin to plunder. Then the sixth is this, giving the nation over to its sin and its own destructiveness. And then finally, destroying that nation. Avery Willis began to research all of the moral issues in America and all of the spiritual issues that he could find. In the, and all the surveys that had been taken and all of that. And he finished his research and he was given the opportunity to preach, to speak at the Southern Baptist Convention, and I was there. And you could have heard a pin drop when he began to explain these seven stages of the judgment of God, and he said, I am totally convinced that I have the documentation that America is already at the fifth stage of the judgment of God. I was stunned. And then he said, let me give you the evidence that I've uncovered. He began to go through one moral issue after another. But before we get there, what does it mean, the fifth stage? God removes the hedge of protection And allows the enemy to plunder. Well, the hedge of protection is simply a Bible term that is used in the Old Testament and New Testament. They had vineyards in that day, and in order to keep the vineyard protected from wild animals, they would put a hedge of protection around it. They would act, it would be a real hedge. They would use thorns and they would transplant thorn bushes and grow thorn bushes to be a hedge of protection around that vineyard. And they would put a door there and they could go in and out, but no wild animals could go in and out. And if they didn't have the thorn bushes that were necessary, they would just build walls that were made of stone so that they were high enough that animals could not penetrate. God used that idea of a hedge of protection. God used that idea to talk about the people of Israel symbolically. And in the Bible, in, in uh, the Bible symbolically uh, talks about God having a hedge around to us to protect us. But in judgment, he takes away the hedge. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 5, listen to how God says it. Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. Now, the vineyard, that word, meant Israel. Let me tell you what I'm going to do with Israel. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. And I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. And Avery Willis said... I'm convinced we are already at the fifth level, the fifth stage of God's judgment. Has God removed the hedge of protection around America? Avery Willis began to walk through one moral issue after another, and it was shocking because he didn't start at just a point that was Uh, current, he went as far back as those records have been kept all the way back to the 1800s. And he started showing that every so often there would be a spike in America, then it'd go back down again, a spike in America and go down back down again. But in the 1960s, something happened in which every single one of those moral issues didn't just spike, they went through the roof and they have never come back since. And he showed how something unique happened in the 1960s that had never happened before in American history. And every one, he went through violent crime, pregnancies to unwed mothers, sexually transmitted diseases, divorces, suicide, child abuse, everything, one after another after another. And what he said is, when I got through with all of these moral issues, I couldn't find one moral issue that had come down. Every one of them. Through the roof what happened in the 1960s in the 1960s is the beginning of the supreme court decisions the first one is to take the bible out of school make it illegal now to to study the bible to because you see what had happened in america after all before all the 1960s and all these years is that when people would go to school they would actually read the bible The the teacher would talk about the morals of the Bible and encourage the children to follow the Bible. That was in school. If you are 20 or 30 or 40 years old, you may think this is the way America has always been, but it's not true. Did you know that before that that period of time the 60s and the 50s and earlier than that that people wouldn't even lock their doors oftentimes at night? They nothing no one's going to bother them and when their kid they'd say to the kids go out and play. And they didn't mean in a fenced up backyard. They met in the front yard. My mother would say to me, "Mark just go get on your bicycle and ride. And we'll see you <laughs> at mealtime." Those were good moments for my mother when I would go do that. And there was no fear whatsoever that any danger would come to me. And kids did that all the time. We went all over the town. We we went and played with other people. It was just amazing. And no one ever bothered us. You could be locked up and put in jail for doing that today. Because of the endangerment of your children everything has changed and for the negative negative. and what Avery Willis did is took us through each one of these and the first issue that happened is that schools stopped teaching the Bible you see the problem was is that parents weren't discipling their own children that's where our children should get an understanding of God's word it's from us it's from the parents and their grandparents The parents had given that over to the schools and the parents weren't discipling their own children. And all of a sudden, there was no compass. So the schools replaced the Bible with a moral, they thought equivalent, of relativism. Relativism simply means you decide what is right for you. You, What's moral to you? What feels right to you? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Relativism, relativism began in the 1960s, and and you decide. There's no God of the universe that decides right and wrong. You decide it, or collectively we decide it. So whatever we decide is right, man. That's right, and whatever we decide is wrong. That's wrong. And what has happened is there's no compass. Before, it was the Bible that was the compass in America. And that's why when there were spikes, the word of God began to touch people's lives. And the spike came back down. But after the 1960s, it never came back down. It has never come back down. And it has continued to get worse in every single moral issue and in spiritual illiteracy. Did you know that this next generation will be the first generation who doesn't know who Jesus is in America? Well, they know that he was a religious leader. They don't know anything about him. They know that he is somehow the founder of Christianity. That's 2,000 years ago, and who cares? And this next generation will be the first generation who does not know who Jesus is. And in fact, this next generation will be the first generation that has become hypercritical of Christianity. And the next generation is going to be worse. And the next generation is going to be worse than that. And this is where we are headed. And I guarantee you this, if Avery Willis was standing right here and preaching, he'd do a ton better job than I would. If he were standing here and preaching, he would say to every last one of us, we are now in the sixth stage of the judgment of God, giving the nation over to its sin and its own destructiveness. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. That are tuning in online, and I know what some of you're thinking uh, in the room that are listening to me in person. Our, our pastor has has gotten a little bit uh, melodramatic today. Maybe he's caught the COVID uh, virus and uh, he's delirious. Well, first of all, I do not have COVID, and second of all, I am not being hyperdramatic. And It's possible that I am delirious, but I am not about this subject. The truth is this. We are watching the judgment of God in this country. Every time you turn on the news, you're watching it in front of your very eyes. What is interesting is that in Israel, when Israel was on the verge of being defeated and destroyed. The people said, God's not going to destroy Israel. I mean, we are a more moral nation than those Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire. They're the most wicked people that you've ever met. God is not going to let us be destroyed. No, God is going to rescue us. We are God's hope for the world, and he will not let any harm come to us. But they were wrong. And the Babylonian empire destroyed Israel. Now God then raised them back up 70 years later and brought them back. But God taught them a desperate lesson. There's a book in the Old Testament that nobody reads. It's called the book of Habakkuk. And maybe you've read it. If you have, you are in a very small minority the book of Habakkuk. Why would I read that Old Testament book of Habakkuk? But the book of Habakkuk is a protest book about God. Habakkuk is saying, I do not understand this at all. This makes no sense to me at all. Because the truth is, yes, we have our moral problems, but we're not nearly as bad as the Babylonian Empire. They're the most wicked people on the face of this earth, and you let them destroy us? I don't understand this. We're better than they are. Why could you not have protected us? And God speaks to Habakkuk, and he said, because you are the people of God, and I told you that if you did not return to me, I will let judgment come. And I have. And get ready, because after the Babylonians have destroyed Israel and taken them into captivity, a day is coming very quick, you watch, in which I will have Babylonian empire destroyed too. Because I am a righteous God, and I keep my word. And I know what Christians are saying in America. God is not going to let America fall. God is not going to let us lose this country. After all, most of us, many of us, most of us in America know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and he would not allow that to happen to us. America is not Israel. But America, for the most part, is following God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we have committed our heart by faith to him. And God will judge us just like he did Israel. And if you want a proof that you and I will not go through judgment, just go back to the Old Testament and see what happened to Israel. I think Christ followers are asleep and I think that we have decided no difficulty will come to us. We are God's hope for the world but the truth is judgment will come to the house of God and it will come to us. For the last several decades, I have had people come to me and say, Christians are asleep, and here is the answer. And their answers are always political. Their answers are always political. You get the right president in, and he'll get the right Supreme Court justices in, and suddenly all these terrible things will totally turn around. Well, there are consequences and benefits to whoever it is that is elected as president and whoever is in the Supreme Court, there are consequences and benefits. I don't undermine that truth. I believe in the political process. I believe it's an important thing in our lives and I believe we ought to vote, but I'm going to tell you the problem in America is not political. The problem in America is spiritual And I have noticed, though there have been so-called right presidents and right Supreme Courts, we keep slipping down the slope. It does not get better. It only is getting worse because the problem in America is spiritual, and it is with the people of God. And the only one that is going to turn this around is not some elected official. It is going to be the people of God getting on, on their knees before a holy God and getting their life straight with God. It is going to be the only thing that turns this around. We've got to come back to God. Since God has a plan to give us mercy and a plan to give us healing, how can I help? Well, listen to what he says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, I will hear. And I will forgive you. And I will heal your land. Notice what he says. If my people not the president, not the congressman, not the Supreme Court justices, if my people, which are called by my name, he means you and me, taking this seriously. Oh, one day we'll see the judgment of God. Oh, no, we are in the midst of it now. if my people, our nation's change must begin with revival among God's own people. we got to stop pointing fingers. It is not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's not the independents. It's the Christians. It's the Christians that are wrong in America. And we got to come back to God. God says there's four things we must do if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I need to humble myself before God. I need to come to God on my knees. You do too. And admit, oh God, we have not been following Jesus in our lifestyle. Instead of us changing the world, the world is changing us. Instead of the lost people looking more like Christ, we're looking more like them. We must admit that we have allowed the world to infiltrate our hearts and our way of thinking and that our politics won't change America. What will change America is repentance before a holy God. We have to come to a place in which we humble ourselves to God and say to God, you are the most important thing in my life, more important than anything else. There is nothing in my life more important than you. That's what it means to humble ourselves before God. Second of all, we can pray. Every spiritual awakening that has ever happened has come as the result of prayer, every single one. The last two Sundays, I have been so blessed, you've been so blessed by Pastor Libin and the preaching and taking us in the Word of God about personal revival, about church revival. He's blessed us, amen? He has blessed us. I've learned from him. It's been convicting in my heart, and I'm so grateful for Pastor Libin. Last week as he was preaching, he taught us about the Moravian revival that took place at the beginning of the 1700s. And how God used that as such a powerful weapon, but it all began with prayer. In the middle of the 1800s in America, there was a giant revival that that swept this country. It all started because of one man who was a nobody. Nobody knew who this guy was. Jeremiah Laffier. Nobody knew him. He was in New York City, and he decided that God wanted to bring revival to New York City. Talk about picking the worst place you could start with. And so he decided God wanted to bring revival to New York City. He had uh, these these leaflets printed. He went from one shop owner, mid-1800s, to another, to another. All of those who were Christians would put it up in their window. And so it was going to be on Wednesday, every Wednesday at noon, instead of eating, come and pray. On the first week, first Wednesday, there were six. On the second Wednesday, there were 40. Come on. How are you going to change New York City with 40 people? But they kept meeting every Wednesday, every Wednesday at noon. Within six months, there were 10,000 people meeting every single Wednesday praying. One church wouldn't hold them. They had to start opening up other churches. Would you be willing to open up your auditorium so that we could come in? Sure. Churches all over New York City began to open up at noon, and people began flooding in and began to pray. Within two years, one million people had come to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, as an impact of that revival. Abraham Lincoln, in the telling of his own story, Said that he encountered this revival. He didn't know who Jeremiah Lamphere was. It wasn't in New York City. I think it was in Kentucky. It spilled out beyond New York to New, the New York state and to other states. And Abraham Lincoln, in his own story, said, "I encountered what was being called a revival." And I saw people's lives be changed. I could hardly believe them. He didn't say it impacted him, but he said in his story, this was happening in another state, I think it was Kentucky, that impacted me. He had no idea. It was Jeremiah Lafier, a Nobody who started it will begin prayer at noon on Wednesdays, and God took it from there. It always starts with prayer. It always starts with prayer. Do you know why we don't pray? We don't pray because we don't think anything will happen. We don't pray because we don't think it will matter if we do pray. See, if we thought prayer actually accomplished something, we would do it. But we don't because we don't actually think anything will happen if we pray. And that's why we don't pray. But every revival that has ever happened in the world began with a group of people who took a totally different view of prayer and believed that prayer would change things. In this prayer, in this this revival that started in New York City, three things happened. First, the people met to pray. And second of all, they confess their sins because what happens is when you start having this time of prayer, God begins to, sh- to shine a spotlight inside your own heart. And you begin to say, oh, my soul, look at the places in which I have compromised my spiritual life. Look at what I am doing. And all of a sudden, we begin to see ourselves in a totally different way. We begin to realize, I am wrong in the way I am reacting to things, in the way things I'm saying and what I am doing. And suddenly, we begin to realize, I am at fault before God. And God begins to clean us up. It is always what happens when prayer continues. God begins to clean us up. And the third thing is, God then begins to heal broken relationships. Do you have somebody... you? don't like you have somebody that you wish you would never see again the rest of your life you have somebody that when you see them come in the other direction you want to turn around and go away see God already knows all those people that we have broken relationships with and when we begin to pray and God begins to change our heart and cleans up our act he then begins to work on our relationships and suddenly our relationships begin to heal and we begin to get things right with other people you know what's happening Revival. See, revival is coming inside you. When you pray, when you get things cleaned up, when you get relationships that are broken, fixed. Revival is happening to you. And you know what will happen? You can't hold it in. It will just start spilling out. You can try, but you cannot hold it in. When God revives you, when God changes you on the inside, it starts splashing out all over people around you and it starts small. And you think nothing's going to happen from this. Good grief, at Sugar Creek Baptist Church, we're going to change America? I don't think so. But what happens is God begins it somewhere. It always starts somewhere. Why not here? Why not us? Why not open our heart to say, okay, God, if it never gets out of Sugar Land, oh, God, revive me again. Because what happens is it starts splashing out on other people, and you have no idea how far it will go. You have no idea the impact you'll make. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, oh, God, God, I don't want anything but you. I want my life to be about you. I don't want anything but you. Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What does God say? I will hear you, and I will forgive you, and I will heal your land. Revival doesn't happen because it's a date on a calendar. And it doesn't happen because there's three sermons. All we wanted these three sermons to do was to prick our conscience and open our heart. Could God do something in me? Could God do something? in you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today, and oh God, we are tempted to say, what is the use of prayer? Because nothing's going to happen. But oh God, you are still on your throne. And if we yield ourselves to you, and we open our hearts to you, And we are willing to do what you've told us to do. We begin to pray. And nobody is praying alongside of us. It's not what you called us to do. You said we were to pray. Oh, God, in the midst of our prayer and our opening our heart to you, you will turn the spotlight inside and you will clean up our act. And then you'll begin to clean up our relationships and those people that we thought we didn't ever want to be around, you will help us restore the relationship to their shock and to ours. And then, God, you will begin to slash outside of our life to someone else. It's how you do it every time. And so, God, we say to you today, We want you. We want you to be the most important thing in our life. We want to know you. We want to be connected to you. We want to be revived again. Bring us back to the joy of our salvation. Individually and splash out all over this church. And then, Father, take it wherever you want it to go. We are yours, and we ask you to use us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.